0: Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? We got an interesting email this week
2: from somebody who said, Carol, you know, there are so many treatment centers out there and treatment modalities. What do you think is the best for treating sexual addiction? And i got to tell you, there is not one answer. You really have to explore what fits your best needs. For instance, I'm in the Midwest. I'm in Indianapolis. So if i got a client who um, is really budget conscious and they can only spend a certain amount of money, I'm going to refer them to some really good treatment centers here in the Midwest so that they can drive there and that's going to cut out, you know, anywhere from three, five, a thousand dollars in airfare. And then I'm going to pick most definitely, the treatment centers that are the most affordable. Now, I also believe there are treatment centers that are premier treatment centers. They have the most incredible staff but they typically are two to three times more expensive than the average treatment center. So it kind of depends on what experience you want. Now, when it comes to individual therapists, you know that I only recommend certified sexual addiction therapists. Um, that's CSATS, C-S-A-T-S. And they are actually trained by ITAP, the International Institute for Trauma and Addiction Professionals. Uh, that is Patrick Carnes group. There are some other very reliable um, treatment modalities out there for orienting therapists to sex addiction and problematic behavior, like SASH, and I... I don't know much about their program, but I do know their organization is excellent. But I'm partial to the one I went to. So I'm going to advocate for them. And then if you want help for your partner, or if you're a partner wanting help for yourself, you all know that I am absolutely, positively biased towards APSATS. APSATS, And that is, the, you know, the partner specialists that specifically work with the trauma that a partner experiences when she finds out that her partner is a sex addict. I mean, that is very, very traumatic. It involves partner betrayal. And partner betrayal is by far the worst type of betrayal out there. And so... I am a believer in getting with people that understand the dynamics behind that. And so those are the two organizations that I really recommend. Thank you for your email. I'm glad that you asked. Now, you may ask yourself, where can I get free resources? You know, there are many, many, many free resources out there. I interview a lot of people that give you lots of free resources. So you've got to tune into my show and find out who those people are. But I highly recommend my YouTube channel. Um, It's Sex Help with Carol the Coach. And I have over 50 videos for partners and for sex addicts on how to get healthier. And I have blogs. I have blogs on um, sexhelp.com. I have blogs on AppSats. I have blogs on my own website, Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Lots of good information that's done in very easy, doable, doable uh, readable, understandable uh, blogs. Because, you know, one of the things I know, I was just reading a research article, and we're talking about how if you have autism, you're much more likely to have sex addiction because of the way your brain operates. It's very repetitive. You go back to it over and over and over again. You're socially isolated. But the research studies were so complex that I thought, boy, this is not anything that I could Uh, refer my listeners to, not that I think my listeners are are, um, intellectually challenged by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, one of the things I'm always amazed at is how well-versed you are in knowledge about sexual addiction and partner trauma, but what I do believe is it makes more sense to be able to read it without having to reread it and reread it. Speaking about reading, tonight I have Joshua Shea. He's the author of The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroyed Relationships. And, you know, I'm telling you, this is a guy who seemingly had it all. He had a loving wife, two children, a supportive extended family. And just about seven years ago, he launched the Lifestyle magazine in his hometown. Within one year, he was one of the founders of Central Maine's largest film festival and had won a seat on his city council. So this guy was really moving and shaking, and he was making a difference in his community. He had received the key to the city and was being called one of the next ten people shaping Maine's economy. Wow, there were a lot of things working in his favor. However, while the public got one picture, of Shay, behind closed doors, his long-time mental health and addiction issues were festering. He was a workaholic by nature, and you know I always say, when you got one addiction, you probably have two or three, and some of them may be what other people would consider very valuable, like workaholism. So Joshua Shea was a workaholic, and he had actively ignored the red flag surrounding his long-existing pornography and alcohol problems. He was finding it easier to lose himself in a bottle of tequila and adult websites than actually dealing with his issues. So, of course, when you combine workaholism, alcohol, and and sex addiction, you got the trifecta. This is going to be a problem. Shay's relationships with his family, his colleagues, and his friends grew distant. His business ventures began to collapse. And his life came to a screeching halt when he was arrested on a charge of underage pornography possession in 2014. Okay, so in 2010, he was considered one of the next ten, well, the next ten people shaping Maine's economy. Four years later, he was arrested on porn possession, child porn. And then he was convicted and he served six months in jail in 2016. So what do you do when you've lost it all and life does not seem like it's going to get any better? Well, if you're ready to make a lifetime change, you decide, how can I make a difference in my own life and in the world? And that's what he did. Following his arrest, he sought help. He got intensive treatment. He did one-on-one therapy, group therapy. He went to inpatient, and he has been sober for four years, and he's written this book. Again, it's called The Addiction Nobody Will Talk About, How My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroyed Relationships. He was bothered by the lack of quality resources and open discussion around the topic of porn addiction. So he has made it his mission to talk about his addiction because he, like I, believe that when you talk about it and when you help others, you know, when you've experienced that suffering and you decide to have a transformation and you give back, that is the new trifecta for wonderful things to occur. He's going to be talking to us tonight about the last several years of his life and kind of the poor judgment and decision-making he made and how he's kind of pulled himself out of it. Again, the addiction nobody will talk about. And I'm looking so forward to talking with him because here's what I know to be true. This is why I do the work I do. So many people... See that sex addiction has a stigma that means that, you know, you're kind of at the bottom of the barrel of society. You're doing things you shouldn't do. It's dark and evil. You know, people don't talk about sex anyway, healthy sexuality, let alone when somebody's veered off the wrong track. You know, they're looking at child porn. They're involved in activities where they exploit others. They get exploited, and as a result, I want to make this a talkable situation so that people can decide for themselves what is right or wrong, what works for them, and what doesn't. Being a sex, um, a sexual health advocate, believer in if there's sexuality that doesn't really hurt you, if it doesn't seem to hurt anybody else, it may not be a problem. And yet what I know to be true, and, you know, I'm in my early 60s, is that more often times than not, sexuality that exploits another person, even if it's in the porn industry, is not healthy. So I, myself, personally... Um, I divert from what many therapists think, which is that pornography is okay. And I'm not against what they think. They can have their opinion, and I will have mine. But what I know to be true is that any time that there are people that are moving into pornography, exploitive pornography, and they're moving away from their own healthy relationships, it does nothing for intimacy and um, their own relationships. So that is why I don't advocate porn of any sort, but I certainly feel like you more than likely have the ability to know is it right or wrong for you, and I'm going to leave it to that. So I really want to encourage you to listen to Joshua's story and then compare it to your own. No matter where you're at, we can all see some some distinct similarities in his story and yours. Joshua Shea, welcome to the Sex Help with Carol the Coach Show.
1: Thank you so much for having me tonight, Carol. I appreciate it.
2: Well, yes, and your story is riveting. You can tell that you are a born educator. Tell us a little bit about your life and what got you to this point where you decided, I need to share my story
1: uh well jeez it's such a long story that's why i put it into a book i guess um you know in 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 a nutshell i uh as, as you mentioned a few moments ago i was dealing with a whole bunch of uh addictions including porn addiction alcoholism workaholism
0: uh i
1: had issues with with mental health as well um and i was so lucky to have the resources and the ability to get some really great help after I ended up being arrested. Uh, It was nearly two years between the time I was arrested and the time that I was sentenced. Uh, The legal system works incredibly slow. Uh, During this time, um, I went to two uh, inpatient rehab uh, centers, one, one for alcoholism, one for sex addiction. I did all of that, uh, one-on-one and group therapy, like you mentioned. And I had this idea that, you know, I, I, I it, it was so powerful sharing my stories with other people who had, uh, these, these, uh, problems, um, when, when we'd get together in, in our groups in rehab or, or back here in Maine, um, But the place that really drove home the point that I should start telling this story was when I was in jail. And um, because I was so well-known in Maine, prior to getting into jail, the newspaper ran some stories of the fact that I was sentenced and heading in there immediately upon entering. uh, There were inmates who were there for reasons that had nothing to do with sex or porn. Most people there were awaiting uh, hearings on domestic violence or Probation violations with drugs or whatnot, but they would come to me off to the side and start asking questions about sex addiction, start asking questions about porn addiction. And it really, you know, was sad because so many of them didn't have the resources to go to a uh, rehabilitation center out of state, or they didn't even know where to go locally to start talking about things. You know, they could find an AA meeting, but they didn't know where to go for a sex addicts anonymous meeting or a sexaholics meeting. Um, So it it was, it was there in talking to a lot of these people that I decided, you know, I think what I need to do is write my story down and not write a story that is necessarily self-help, not write a story that's necessarily full of statistics. And I can quote both ad nauseum to you, but really just talk about myself and talk about the way that I imploded and hope that the book can really serve two purposes. One, as a mirror for those who are in the early stages of addiction or maybe in the ongoing stages. To see my story and recognize that if you don't get help, like any other addiction, it's going to escalate. And in my case, it escalated to a criminal place, as many addictions do. Um, The other reason I wrote the story was to... Really try to get through to people who don't know anything about uh, addiction, uh, specifically porn addiction, and so they can see that there is no stereotype when you come to uh, an addiction like this. I've met doctors and lawyers and teachers and every you know man woman every age walk of life who, who suffers with this and i think that that needs to come more to the forefront it's not you know perverted 20 year old guys in their mom's basement who have never kissed a girl in real life this is something that we all have uh, or or that every type of person could have and uh getting that out there is i think is really important uh especially where we are right now in society
2: I highly agree with everything you've just said, and what I know to be true is that porn addiction is in itself a sex addiction, but it's also a gateway for other addictions. And so one of the things that I loved about your book and I love about your mission is that you're really there to help anybody with any income, all resources. I mean, you and I both know that it can happen to anybody so can you tell us a little bit about how did your life evolve into this porn addiction what happened because you were a workaholic and gosh you were named the one of the 10 top people in maine for the economy i mean it looked like you had it all so give us a little bit of background to to the
1: people to the people on the outside it absolutely looked like i did but from a very young age, I mean, I my story is in some ways your paint-by-numbers story when it comes to addiction. There was uh, a, a fair amount of trauma at the hands of a uh, babysitter I had when I was uh, young, when I was young, um, who my parents would leave me with when they went off to work. And for several years, I had to deal with uh, physical, mental, and and, and sexual. Um, I hate to use the word abuse because I've met people who've been abused so much worse than I was. But some very inappropriate situations, some very uh, unhealthy situations that I was put into, or that I witnessed other children being put into. Um, you know, I think that was where some of the uh, some of the formula started right off the bat. Um, I can't explain it, but the first time that my cousin exposed me to hardcore pornography, and I was ten or eleven years old. Um, I knew I discovered something very special. Um, It was very similar the way that when I I first got drunk four years later, four or five years later, I knew that I had just found some kind of massive coping mechanism that would stay with me for life. And that could be a go-to. Yeah. And and I didn't know anything about addiction being a kid, but I just knew I discovered something. Um, And it stayed with me through life. And there were times where uh, I very rarely had to had to utilize pornography at all when I was, you know, actively dating or when I was in the early years of my marriage. Um, it, it didn't rear its ugly head, and the same thing was true for my for my other addictions. They would uh, come in and go out, come in and go out over 20 years. Um, what really brought everything to a head was three four years uh, after starting my magazine, and the magazine took off like wildfire never could have imagined how popular it would be and how it would thrust me to the forefront of people's minds as quickly as it did. But as you know, as new shiny things, uh, tend to become after a few years, it wasn't that special anymore. And I am not a great businessman. I'm, I'm a writer and editor, editor by trade. Um, at the beginning, we had a ton of money coming in and not a lot of expenses. Four years later, we started to plateau with our revenue and our expenses kept growing and I didn't have the skill set to take care of this. So I fell back onto my uh, addictions and started to drink harder and use more porn than I ever had. The I couldn't turn around my company's fortunes and... Uh, Ultimately, um, I just thought, you know, I've I, I was I was diagnosed bipolar in my mid twenties. You know, I remember that intense amount of energy that I used to have when I wasn't taking my psych meds, maybe if I took myself off of my meds, I could tap into that manic side that when I was 22 years old would let me stay up 20, 21 hours a night, uh, where I never felt tired, where I had constant creative juices going, where everything was great. And and that's just the fallacy of nostalgia. Um, because so, so, so I, I pulled myself off of my pills and I think that was the, uh, I don't say beginning of the end. I think that was the end of the beginning. Um, I think that uh, I it didn't have the result that I hoped for. It didn't save the Mm -hmm. company. All it did was make me turn more toward alcohol and porn as crutches for coping with anxiety, for coping with the stress of a failing business, Uh, my relationship with my wife and my kids. Uh, was failing because I was spending so much time at work trying to save this thing um, and trying to run my film festival and and political career. Um, And it was really one of these things that just kept imploding and imploding and I needed more alcohol and I needed more porn. Eventually, I made the move from watching videos online to talking to women in chat rooms and I very quickly learned how to work the software that was used. So nobody would see me on a webcam, but I could see them. What they would see mm-hmm. is a video of a good-looking guy who, uh, you know, had a lot who, you know, uh, he he sounded just like me because it was me doing the typing, but he was a much prettier version of me. And I was able to uh, convince women Um, By gaining their trust, you're you're absolutely typical kind of grooming to uh, engage in sexual behavior online. And one of the things that I would do at the end, because as my life was imploding and as trophy collecting was a hugely important way for me to validate myself, I would take a screen capture when I successfully got a woman to take off her clothes or, or perform sexually online for me. Uh, take a couple screen captures, throw it into a folder, and come back the next night and do, do it all over again and ho- hopefully be successful. And that was really all about power. Um, I didn't use those those screen captures I took. I, I didn't use them for sexual gratification because I had the whole rest of the Internet to use for that. This was my little niche of even though I was losing power within my family, I was losing power at the workplace, I couldn't together, it seemed like the world was against me, those two or three hours in the middle of the night when I was talking to women online, that's when I could exercise power and I needed a trophy to show it. Unfortunately, yeah, and it was anonymous,
2: it was affordable, and it was accessible. You could do it. Really, without Absolutely. anybody knowing what was going
1: on. Absolutely, because, like I said, most people, when they're using these, it's they they see the the person on the other end. The person on the other end sees them. But I was taught essentially how to bypass my webcam and find a video uh, that could that could fool people. So they were seeing instead of seeing a guy in his okay. late 30s whose life was crashing, they saw this. Good-looking, buff guy in his early 20s. Um, and I, I i was, you know, and since they didn't see me, I was on one part of my computer screen. Anytime a woman would give me a little bit of information that they probably didn't think was very important, I could be doing my investigative uh, searches on the Internet. And I, I have a background as a reporter, and I'm very good at reading people. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an addict. I'm a liar and a manipulator by trade. Um, I I knew how to work with people so I could get them to do what I wanted. And unfortunately, after several months of doing this, um, I my body and my mind kept deteriorating to the point where I, as long as she looked old enough, that was good enough for me. That was really my only criteria. Unfortunately, um, looks can deceive. Uh, looks can absolutely deceive. And I know this, but I didn't let it bother me. And I unfortunately ended up talking to a, a teenage girl. A few months after that happened, I you know didn't think of it. It was a one-off kind of thing. Uh, a few months later, the main state police showed up at my door with a search warrant for my computers, and uh, we were we were off to the races there. I lost my job you know immediately. The, the my co-owners of the of the magazine uh, fired me that day. I spent that day that I was arrested dodging TV cameras um, at my house because their vans would show up every hour or two. Um, it was a hectically crazy time, but it was the best thing that ever could have happened for my health. Um, I would yeah, you never know, as I'm listening to your
2: story, I'm sitting there thinking, I get that you had to be absolutely in shock and yet in denial And hypervigilance. I mean, when you are exposed like that, all of a sudden your body goes into overdrive. And then I'm thinking about your wife and kids and how they probably didn't have even a clue that you were living this dual life.
1: My wife knew that I used or that I, I had viewed pornography online and she didn't have a huge problem with it in the past because I think she thought it was a once in a while kind of thing. Um, that like was, any woman uh, do. Well, yeah, like, like, you know, it's, and, and, and like, like I think a lot of guys actually probably do utilize it um, as a once in a while release. And I, I and she didn't have any giant moral opposition to pornography as a as an entity, and she just didn't know. She had no idea where it went in those last that last year or two, as it became something that really almost sustained me to like like the alcohol to allow me to keep going.
2: Um, now let and, me ask you something because I talked yeah. to my listeners about. Pornography either being arousing, it brought you that intensity and that feeling of taboo, what else is out there, that excitement, that rush, that dopamine hit, or it brings you into a numbing experience where you just kind of zone out and you numb out and all that time distortion occurs when you're numbing and medicating. Or last but not least, it activates that fantasy part of the brain where you're actually living a life that is not the life you're living. Of those three criteria, which one do you think was your primary fixation?
1: Uh, I would say that largely depends where I was in the illness. For many, many okay. years, it was, it, was a, it was a physical release. Um, huh. And then I think it, it, it before it became ultra-critical, I think it became a lot about fantasy um, of, of escaping to a different life, um, of recognizing I'm in, I'm in my late thirties. And there were a lot of, uh, there were a lot of boats of sexual exploration that have sailed. And the only way I was ever going to get to experience any of them was through pornography. Um, but at the very end, it was just about numbing. It really wasn't even about pleasure. Um, like, uh, my, Self gratification wasn't really even that much of a part of the uh, uh, ritual or routine. In the last six eight months, um, it was about control and about power. and And it wasn't you know it wasn't the reasons that the fifteen year old me started to get into it or would rent porno videos a couple times a week. Uh, it was really a almost a life sustaining thing or that that's how I saw it at the very end. It was, it was medicine. It was, it was the same reason I drank. Um, I needed it to cope with the reality of the real world.
2: Well, and you, you referenced obviously mental health issues. And so do you mind sharing with our listening audience your actual mental health, um, diagnosis?
1: Oh, not, not at all. Um, in my uh, early twenties I took a very very hard hit when my when my best friend was uh killed by a drunk driver and I started to see a therapist at that point and we started to get into some issues and it was very clear that I had issues with anxiety so for a couple of years uh i didn't i wasn't on many meds um but i i was he diagnosed me with a general generalized anxiety disorder um Life kept getting more difficult for me i kept having i had have episodes that just didn 't make a lot of sense to me and it was finally uh my uh, regular physician who had known me since I was you know a kid who said you know uh, who and who who had witnessed me uh you know rise up in journalism at at that point And he said, you know, I think that you really should look into a bipolar diagnosis. I've just known you so long, and I think this might fit. When he gave me some uh, material about it, it fit like a glove. I had never seen anything that so perfectly described me. And and not just the way that I felt, but like behaviors um, of somebody who uh, who was suffering from bipolar. Because the fact was, I only knew things were wrong when I was depressed. I didn't recognize the mania was a whole problem unto itself because mm-hmm. the mania was my normal. The mania was my normal, the depression, which would happen maybe a week of the month or maybe, you know, two months of the year. Uh, that, that, that was the abnormal piece that I was trying to get taken care of, not recognizing the mania was an issue. So in my mid twenties, I was, uh, diagnosed, uh, P- oh, diagnosed with bipolar, um, As I was going through the recovery process um, between my arrest and my sentencing, um, I had a medical professional in California, uh, the first person that I saw um, who who was a uh, certified sex addiction therapist. Um, He was the first one who floated the idea of PTSD to me. And as I learned, I, I thought that was just something that people got when they came home from Iraq from fighting in the war. Uh-huh. Uh, but as I, as, as I did more research um, and, and started to do a lot of work with one specific uh, therapist back here in Maine, um, that seemed to really fit a lot of my, uh, a lot of the, the feelings and trauma that I had dating back to being a, a, a young kid um dealing with that hellish house that I was in um with that babysitter um so p t s d and bipolar are the two big ones um my therapist and I have been uh talking a bit about uh some narcissistic personality disorder tendencies that I have uh in in the last couple months um we, she, but, she she yeah, doesn't quite oftentimes... diagnose me with it yet but.
2: Yeah, narcissism actually comes out of being wounded And you were wounded early on in your life So that narcissism helped to uh, provide that guard, if you will That that wall that said, I am all this and you can't hurt me anymore
1: Right, right, absolutely And, and what's interesting is right now I'm going through this process of... Uh, promoting this book and sharing my story again and again and again. And it's interesting in seeing some of my very uh, instinctive reactions to what's going on. Um, you know, just little things like when I get, I, I haven't received any bad reviews for the book yet, but I've received some middle of the road reviews and, you know, that tweaks my little inability to handle, you know, criticism and, you know, it it it. I, I put out this book, and I want people to love it because I have this need for admiration. You know, I have these fantasies of of being a super successful author, and you know, almost. And 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 I have to stop and recognize. You know what? I I'm I'm not entitled to anything. I, I'm I'm not superior to any other author. Uh, I'm I'm these these natural things that come out of me now that before I would act on and just run with. Um thankfully now I've been through so much therapy in the last couple of years that I can stop and really do what cognitive behavioral therapy is supposed to do for you, which is cause you to stop and look at your actions and analyze them and figure out why you're thinking the way you are, why you're behaving the way you are, what your next steps are going to be. And I think in 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 doing some uh research and learning about narcissistic personality disorder it's one of these things that most therapists don't diagnose quickly because they really have to get to know you as a as a patient um and understand you before they can uh and uh, attach this diagnosis to you and I can really see how 5 6 years ago if somebody had introduced this idea to me that I had a narcissist Problem. Uh, I, I would have, I would have laughed in their face and just said, No, it's just because I'm that much better than you. You know, that's 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 what the problem is. Um, but thankfully, through this process of recovery, I'm open to new ideas. I'm open to diagnosis. I'm open to looking at myself in. And, and for the first time, in you know, the first 35, 36 years of my life, I would not listen to criticism. I would not listen to uh, dissenting opinions, including when I had my own dissenting opinions. I just looked straight forward. I had my path. I was who I was. And uh, thankfully, recovery has allowed me to go a little bit deeper than to just be the stories that I tell myself.
2: Well, absolutely. And for our listening audience, again, I'm talking with Joshua Shea, and he wrote a book called The Addiction That Nobody Will Talk About, How My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroyed Relationships, which, I mean, you can't say it any more clear than that. Now, first of all, if people want to get the book, how can they go about doing that?
1: Well, you can do the 21st century thing and just jump on Amazon and type in uh, the name of the book or my name. Um, But what I usually try to do is drive people to my website. um, And that website is recoveringpornaddict.com. There are links where you can buy the book uh, at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you know, a few other places. Um, But my website also really is the evolution of that book. It talks a lot more about my recovery. I write a couple articles a week usually. Um, It's the It's what the book isn't. It's the how-to section. It's it's got resources. It has your statistics. Uh, It really is about me living my life in recovery, where the book is more geared towards, here's how a guy who seemingly has everything um, can be successful at hiding an addiction for a long time, but eventually uh, you you can't keep up the facade forever.
2: Well, and actually how that was a blessing in that it got you to look at the things you needed to look at to heal from the wounds that you had in childhood. Now, what was your recovery process like? I mean, I know that it started before you went to jail. So talk a little bit about the recovery process, how it's ongoing, and um, what it means to Yeah, sure, to you. sure.
1: Yeah, well, um I met with my lawyer for the very first time uh, the day after that I was arrested. Um, He was a acquaintance of my father's and my father told him a little bit about me. And, you know, it it was not a secret in my family that I drank a little bit too much. But that was that was about it. And I had no record at all, uh, no legal problems at all before this happened. And like everybody else around here, my lawyer knew who I was and what my accomplishments were even before he met me personally. And he, you know, he also knew that uh, they had me dead to rights when it came to having the proof on my computer uh, that they could prosecute me with. So it really became about sentencing immediately. And he, you know, asked, he asked, and my, my wife and my, and my father both came to the, uh, Uh, first meeting that I had with with my lawyer. And uh, it was brought up that, you know, our our strategy would probably be to show that um, this was uh, a sickness that I, you know, here I am a pillar of the community, but there was something else going on. And what we need to do is figure out what else is going on, figure out how to deal with it. And figure out how I can move forward so I don't ever uh, re-offend like this again. And the first thing that was decided on, almost as a little group, was that I really need to get help for my alcoholism. Um, Because, And and truth be told, while I knew that I looked at pornography probably more than the average person, and I uh, used it in a way that the average person probably didn't, I had not yet... And the shock was probably still fresh from the arrest, but I did not wrap my arms around the fact that I was truly a pornography addict for some time uh, after that. but I knew that day that i was i had I had an issue with alcohol, and that uh, I probably needed some help, so I agreed to go off to an inpatient treatment center um, in California. I thought that I'd be there for twenty eight days just like you see in the movies, and i'd, I'd you know act. All sad that I had a drinking problem. While I didn't think I really had much of a drinking problem, I just, you know, I I drank because of stress and removed the stress. There's no problem. Well, it only took a few days in the facility for me to really understand what alcoholism is and that I was absolutely an alcoholic. And those 28 days turned into 70 days. And they were 70 of the best days of my life Uh, and 70 of the hardest days of my life as I came to understand. Uh, my relationship with alcohol, why it developed and uh, and what it was doing to me. Um, after that, I came home and got myself into one on one therapy multiple times a week um, to start talking uh, in in a safe place about the uh, about the sex issues and and how I viewed sexuality and how I utilized pornography and after seven, eight months of that. Um, I, I really came to understand that while my alcoholism was the, the, probably the public addiction, the porn addiction was really the private addiction, but it was just as big an addiction. And I needed to help with that. So I went to my lawyer and said, listen, I think I need to go do this as well. And thankfully, the district attorney um, was very understanding in this case, um, and he uh, he told me to go get whatever help I needed and you know, we would put off sentencing. Um well, you know, I I couldn't avoid avoid it, but I, we'd put it off. So I went off to a Texas rehab um in Argyle, Texas for seven weeks. Um and that was a very different kind of rehab, but it was still just as important, just as transformational. Um, I came back and uh, continued with the deep one-on-one therapy, uh, did some 12-step meetings, um, but unfortunately in Maine, there are just next to none when it comes to Sex Addicts Anonymous, um, and continued to learn about it and read about Porn addiction and sex addiction, and I reconnected with a friend of mine who I knew had issues with it years earlier, um, and communicate one on one about about uh, what we'd both been through. Um, the uh, ironic fact is, uh, when I, the day that I went for my sentencing, um, I was probably healthier that day, mentally, physically, emotionally, than I had ever been in my life. Uh, the person who went off to jail two years after I was, uh, initially arrested, uh, what was such a healthier version of me and in jail, I, I, you know, in jail, I was speaking to these, uh, men and, uh, learning their stories, um, as I had with people in other rehabs, I just realized I needed to write my book. So that was a huge part of my recovery, um, when i got out of jail i uh continued writing i started up my website um you know ended up finding a publisher for the book and i'll tell you what was actually very very powerful for me um and i know you saw this in the book was that the first draft of my book i wrote in jail was about 200,000 words um mm-hmm. the one that's in, the one in the final draft of the book is 90,000 words and what that editing forced me to do was to really take a look at what were the important key points of my story and my addictions and my fall, and what were just the other little pieces that I told myself were important but really weren't. And it was so powerful sitting there, just having to really just cut pieces of my story out. Um, I, I know they're there, and I know, you know, had had a feeling what role they played but what I ended up with in this book was really the most important part of my uh, addiction story and that was hugely hugely powerful and so today I still attend regular uh one-on-one therapy sessions I as part of my uh probation um go to a regular group therapy um, for uh, sex offenders um, and I'll do that throughout my probation Um, and I you know I've this book has been part of me since I left jail and now it's just a matter of uh, talking to people like you talking to newspaper reporters or radio show hosts telling them my story because I realized that It's important. It's it's great that I wrote a book. It was very cathartic. I wrote a book. I hope plenty of people buy the book. But this book has allowed me to meet people like you and talk to people like you who have larger platforms where I can share my story. And I think what I've really come to understand is that's what the important part of this is. That's what's important for my recovery is telling my story. It doesn't matter if it's in a book or on a radio show or on a blog or on a podcast or wherever it is the important thing for me in my recovery and for what I think I need to do to, I guess, give back in a way is to just keep telling my story and let people know what's happening because it is the addiction. Nobody will talk about. Like the book says, we're, the statistics suggest that we're facing a pretty mighty crisis here in the next generation or two when it comes to porn addiction. And I want to, do my part and hopefully get out ahead of this problem and just let people know that, yes, it's a, it's a tough topic. Yes, we're still a puritanical society in a lot of ways who doesn't want to talk about what happens when the bedroom door shuts or or what you just erased in your browser history. But we need to talk about this and we need to talk about the effects it's having. So. I feel like I'm trying to do some good for society, but this process is also still doing a lot of good for me, and this is what recovery, this is what my recovery looks like.
2: Oh, absolutely, and we so appreciate you doing that because obviously one of the things that we know about sex addiction is you're only as sick as your secrets, and when you come out and you talk about your suffering, and you bring it to the public, and you show your own transformation of which you have made much, and then you help other people, that's really the crux of life. That is what we're we're here on earth to do. So I believe that sex addiction is epidemic, and, and unfortunately so many of our young people are really dealing with already that compulsivity where they know that what they're doing isn't right, but they don't know how to stop, and nobody talks to them about sex, let alone sexual behaviors
1: no and uh, and one of the one of the things that I didn't anticipate from this is uh people outreaching to me with my website and then now that I'm telling this story so publicly and I had a uh guy from the u k who was in his early twenties who wrote to me three or four weeks ago and wanted to know if he had a porn addiction. And I was trying to say, I'm not a doctor, I can't tell you. But his story was one where he he, he sent me to his website. He had one of the most beautiful girlfriends I've ever seen in, in life. And he was telling me that he cannot get aroused with her anymore. He has to bring porn into the relationship to uh, be able to satisfy her or, or to be able to uh, together sexually and it's because before he met her uh, in his teen years he spent hours a day masturbating to pornography and that has left a deep mark and it's hurting his relationship and he doesn't know what to do and and you know i i i i urged him to go speak to some professionals and see what he could do because i don't know what the answer is but you know if if there's this one guy who reached out to me with this story there are probably tens of thousands of guys throughout the world with similar stories that uh, you know the porn has wrecked their regular sex lives and that's only going to keep happening and it's only going to keep having, uh, you know, warping people's minds and, and changing the brain chemistry. And uh, my my the scariest statistic that I've seen recently was that uh, one in three men between the ages of 18 and 30 believe that they either have a sex addiction or have a porn addiction or have an unhealthy relationship with porn. That's one in three guys, or one in three men under 30. Now, if we don't do anything about that, it's soon going to be one in three men under 40 and one in three men under 50. And that's if the numbers stay the same. The history suggests that pretty soon it will be one out of two men under 30 if we keep going the way that we're going. Now, what happens in 25 years if we as a society don't address this? What happens when half the men in this country have porn addictions? So what, what does that world look like? Um, it, it' better than the world we're in now, but that's where we're headed.
2: Well, yes, and and because we don't talk about sex, and because we don't talk about all the accessibility to sex, um, people don't understand how epidemic it is. And of course, you and I both know that there are plenty of men and women who have wanted to stop and vowed to stop has known that it was interfering in their relationships or in their own sexuality or in their own health or their own safety, but they've not been able to, and they haven't known where to turn. Now I'm going to ask you two questions because obviously you ended up going to jail for underage porn. And I'm sure our listening audience wants to know, did you – have a gut feeling that she was underage
1: i i ask myself that a lot and i think mm-hmm. if i'm going to be completely honest with me or with you i used the litmus test of did did they look sexually mature and i gave really no mind to whether they were over or under 18 years old um, I think it just, I was just at a place where it didn't matter to me at that point. Um, I'm sure that on, on these uh, websites that I used, uh, if you didn't like the person that popped up on the screen, you could hit the next button and move on to the next person. I'm sure there were people who were over 18 years old who I hit, or women over 18 years old, I hit the next button on because they probably looked like they were under 18 to me. Because there are some people who are 23 and 27 and 40 who, you know, don't look sexually mature. And on the other end of it, there are 13-year-olds and 15-year-olds and 17-year-olds who look absolutely sexually mature but aren't still children. And did I have a gut feeling? I don't know that I actually had the wherewithal to have those gut feelings. Okay, and that is a fair question
2: question and answer. I mean, obviously, that is being caught in the addiction. So do you think that six months was an appropriate amount of time to have been incarcerated?
1: Um, Well, on a very personal level, obviously, I didn't want to go to jail. Um, you know I I, I didn't want to spend one day in jail because it was me Mm -hmm. looking at it looking at it objectively when somebody does something like I did they absolutely should go to jail Uh, I I understand people with addictions are ill but I think when you commit the kind of crime that I did there has to be uh, uh, there has to be repercussions and I'll also mention that Jail was a huge part of my recovery because it taught me that there are consequences to my actions, and it really drove that point home. I was always the person who would – I mean, I preach this to people. Just go ahead and do what you want and say sorry. It's so much easier than asking permission to do anything because people will say no to you if you ask for permission. If you just go ahead and do the thing and then say sorry, most people will just shrug. And that's not the way the world actually works. That's the way that my diseased mind said the world worked. And because I was entitled and I was special, that's the way the world worked for me. And this was a great wake-up call that that's not how the world works for me, that I'm just like everybody else and I have to follow the laws just like everybody else. Um, As far as specifically six months, um, I have stopped – asking myself if that was too little or too much, because what it was, it was right for the judge. And I had to abide by what the judge said. Um, If I always say, if people think that it's, it's too little time, or if people think it's too much time, there are ways to go change the laws and ways to go change sentencing. I could sit with resentment that I was in jail for six months, or I could, consider myself super lucky for not being there for five years um it it was what it was and i accept it but i don't dwell on it too much it was what society deemed was correct so it, it, it it was what it was but it was very it was very important to me although i probably could have got that message in two months just as easily
2: well, and, you know, you were so honest to say that you know that, A, it reminded you of the consequences of your behavior because, obviously, in addiction, you become more and more invincible, and because you feel invisible, you don't think it's ever going to catch up with you, so, A, you experience the consequence, and then, two, obviously, being there really helped you to get your thoughts together, and it's when you did the majority of your writing, so... You
1: made it work for you. Well, and I'll tell you, one of the things that I never so – thought. and keep in mind, I, I was in county jail. In Maine, if you are uh, sentenced to less than nine months, you go to jail versus prison. So I can't really speak to the prison system in Maine. But in county jail, uh, the, the hardest – uh, there were a lot of adjustments, but one of the hardest adjustments mentally was the fact that nobody expected anything from me. Uh, I I was expected to not get in fights with people. I was expected to take my meds when I was told, and that was essentially it. I could you know, I could pass up on meals or I could eat meals. They they provided them. I could watch TV or not. I could there was there was no there there was nothing for me to be be beholden to. And that was one of the strangest things. Of the world. Because even in rehab, you have to be at this group at this time. You're going to be eating this at this time, and you'd better eat it. Then you're going to be exercising at this time, and you'd better be out there. Um, you know, th- I, this was the first time in my life that I didn't have a rigid schedule and that I really didn't have any responsibilities. And while that so- probably sounds wonderful to a lot of people, um, Truly having no responsibilities, truly having no schedule, uh, especially for somebody like me, was such a giant shift in my thinking and in 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 my life that it, it was probably a good thing because I, they say, you know, jail and prison strips away a lot from you. That was one of those things that I needed stripped away from me. Uh Because I only became responsible to myself at that point. And that was something that had never happened before. And I don't think that's something that could have happened to me on the outside. I was always going to have my mortgage and my kids and my wife and my work and extended family. And there was just there was it was nothing but responsibility. Having that all taken away from me while I was in jail was, like I said, for a lot of people, it probably sounds relaxing. It was actually mentally draining on me at first until I learned how to adjust my thinking. So, again, uh, jail, I, people, I tell people jail was not hard time. Uh, you know, the, the Hollywood made me think it was going to be a whole lot worse than it was as far as like violence goes. Um, but it was a long time it was day after day of being with myself and you either have to learn to really uh, accept yourself and develop yourself into the kind of person that you can live with, or it's going to be a rough, rough time.
2: Yeah. Very good point. And how's your family doing?
1: We're great and we're stronger than we've ever been. Um, And that's just a, uh, testament to my wife and my kids um i have seen and met so many people who have had their lives and their family lives destroyed by the kind of thing that i did and thankfully uh my wife uh, worked hard to forgive me my kids worked hard to adjust and understand um everybody you know has uh moved along at their own pace uh But I feel like and I think that they would agree that I'm a better father and husband now than I probably ever have been. And, uh, you know, I, I mentioned earlier when those police came to the door, I thought to myself, oh, my life is over. My life is over. And the truth was, thankfully, my life was over because that was a horrible, horrible life to be living. And I'm able to live a life now that um, has more meaning you know i mean i may only be talking to you know dozens of people or hundreds of people on my blog versus tens of thousands like i was with my magazine but i feel like i'm saying much more important things uh, i i feel like this all i want to say this happened for a reason um, because i think that I I like to think this kind of bad thing doesn't happen to my victims for a reason. Um, Mm -hmm. But, but what I can do is if I can through my work now create a world that has one less victim than I created, then maybe this was all for a net good.
2: Oh, and that's a wonderful place to end. Joshua Shea, Thank you so much for sharing your story. I want to remind our listeners that you've written The Addiction That Nobody Will Talk About, How My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroyed Relationships. You can get that on his website. And one more time, your website is?
1: It is recoveringpornaddict.com.
2: That's right. And of course, you can do it all the other ways, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Borders, whatever. But if you go to his website, it, it probably makes him just a little more money, correct?
1: Um, you know what? I'm not even sure. My publisher's handling all of that. and I've just been told I won't see any check for six months. And because this is such a specialty book, don't expect to see much of a check even in six months. Um, so I'm not worrying about that. Because if 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 this was about money, I would continue doing what I didn't <clears> – <throat> excuse me, what I did in my past. And I, I still make money in regular life as a freelance writer and as a ghost writer. Um, you know, so whether whether I get $2 and $2.20, I, I don't care.
2: Right. It matters not. Well, thank you for getting the word out. And keep us posted of other endeavors that you're doing. And I wish you the best of luck because – you really symbolize what recovery is all about. Thanks, thanks so much.
1: Thank you. That really means a lot uh, hearing that. And I also just want to thank you for giving people like me uh, the platform by which to share our stories because it would be impossible without that. So thank you very
2: much, Carol. Well, I love talking about hope, strength, and recovery. And um, you just keep up the good work. You take care. Thank you. That was Joshua Shea, and again, his book is The Addiction That Nobody Will Talk About, How My Pornography Addiction Hurt People and Destroyed Relationships. You can get it on Amazon. And we're running late tonight, so I got to go, but I want you to know there will only be one of you at all times, so fearlessly have the courage to be yourself. And we will see you next week for more sex help, with carol the coach make it a great week no matter what is going on and no matter what you're facing you can do it and go to my sex help with carol the coach youtube videos to get inspired about your own personal strengths. have a great week
0: Plus.